and welcome to the Ward's Auto Podcast. I'm David Kiley, Senior Editor at Ward's Auto and your host. This is our final episode for 2023. It's been a great ride since we began the new podcast last June, and we'll be back in January and all year long as Ward's marks its 100th anniversary. That's right. Ward's is turning 100 in 2024. And I'm checking to verify, but we think we're the oldest continuously operating automotive media and data company in the U.S. We've had some name alterations since 1924, but we have been continuously operating since then. No, how I remember those early days when I interviewed Henry Ford, the Dodge brothers, Walter Chrysler, Ferdinand Porsche, and so many more luminaries. Well, maybe we can interview them again next year with the help of artificial intelligence. You never know. So this week, we're going to brush on and update some of the topics and issues we have hit on since June regarding the transformation of our industry from being rooted in the internal combustion engine and into the era of electrification. And to help us do that, I will be joined by Ward's Intelligence Principal Analyst for Sustainability, Christy Schweinsberg, right after this message from our excellent sponsor, American Axle, to whom we are very grateful for supporting our first foray into podcasting. This podcast is brought to you by American Axle and Manufacturing. AAM is designing, engineering, and manufacturing award-winning vehicle technologies to power a more sustainable future. Their team is pushing the boundaries of disruption all around the world with over 80 global locations in 18 countries. To learn more and join the team that is bringing the future faster, visit aam.com careers. So thank you, Christy, for joining us in what will be the last podcast of 2023. And, you know, since we began in June, we've covered a lot of issues, especially mostly concerning the transition from the internal combustion engine era to the era of electrification. So let's tackle a, a handful of subjects today. Let's start with demand. Lots is being talked about. Uh, regarding consumer demand for EVs softening up. How are you seeing this particular story? Thanks, David. Yeah, certainly that is that has been a big topic this fall. And I think what's important to remember here is consumer demand is softening from the, I would say, overly exuberant projections that many automakers had for EV demand. To put perspective on this, we have we're up 50% this year in the U.S. versus this time a year ago with Bev sales. So uh, January through November, we've sold over a million Bevs in the U.S. It's the first time that we've hit a million sales in a calendar year in the United States for battery electric vehicles. And yeah, 50% growth rate from January through November of 2022. So those are fantastic numbers. So I, w- I would challenge anybody who will, who will say that Bevs aren't doing well. But yes, automakers were were very exuberant and I would say unrealistic really about where they thought we'd be right now in terms of consumer demand for BEVs. You have to understand the majority of Americans have never even owned or driven a hybrid, let alone a plug-in vehicle. <laughs> Hybrids require require no change in behavior, right? You're still going to a gas station. A plug-in, I, I would argue, does not require that big of a change in behavior. But for a lot of people, it seems like a huge change in behavior. And, and you know, there's there's a lot of people who are not 
ready yet for BEBS um, for that reason and, and a variety of other reasons. So I would argue that, yeah, I don't know if it was consultants or if it was their own internal marketers that got these numbers wrong. But, you know, I remember three years ago, almost four years ago now before the pandemic, hearing GM say they were going to sell a million BEVs by 2025 glo globally. And I looked at what the numbers were for 2019, and I think they had sold like 50,000 or something. And it just seemed it just seemed way, way, way um, yeah. over the top. So. It for one thing, I, I've always found the auto industry to be very production focused. Mm -hmm. And so they they look at their production plans and assume that everything they produce, they're going to be able to sell. Um, right. They might have to put some incentives on it, but but they figure that they'll sell whatever they produce. Speaking of forecasts, I was editing a story about Volkswagen and their new entry-level ID you know, vehicle, you know, coming out in a couple of years. I had reason to sort of go back and, and in 2019, I think it was, Volkswagen projected that they would be doing 2 million EV sales globally by 2025, I think. Mm. And they are currently sitting, I believe, below... 600,000 a year. Yeah. So yeah. that would be a go. pretty big jump if they if they managed to hit that target. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like they forgot to check with consumers when they <laughs> made, you know, when they made these um yeah, uh, these forecasts because I'm here to tell you people have way bigger fish to fry than buying a EV well ahead of any government mandate. Right. Know? It's right. Just, that's just human nature. Yeah. So let's um let's shift to product, which of course, you know, product is king. And you and I know that there are some excellent EVs on the market. A lot of them, of course, are very expensive, like the Lucids and that ilk of uh, of EVs. But one of the things that hit me in the last six months was it really came home to roost that we don't yet have today as we are speaking electric fully electric cuvs and suvs with acceptable ranges at reasonable prices relative to where average transaction prices are which are you know hovering between uh, depending on the month hovering between 47 and 50 grand until i saw the honda prologue and the Acura ZDX electric CUVs, which are interestingly built atop GM's Ultium platform. But when I saw those, I thought, huh, boy, that's the first time I've seen something that really looks like it hits from a utility and shape and size standpoint is hits the sweet spot of the EV market. Yeah, yeah. You know, those are certainly two of the more, I think, down-to-earth offerings that we're, we're expecting soon. You know, the, the BEV market started with a lot of cars and a lot of subcompact, compact size vehicles. And the, the, the internal combustion engine sector was already moving full steam ahead into CUVs and SUVs. I think they were already 50% of the market 10 years ago. So there was that disconnect between what BEV offerings were and what you can get in internal combustion engine vehicles, which was a whole lot of crossovers and, and utility vehicles. So now finally, 
I believe if I look at the list of nameplates available in the U.S. today, it's majority light truck. You know, you've got the Cadillac Lyric, you've got BMW iX, you've got the Silverado, although in low numbers, you got the F-Series, you got the Mustang Mach-E, the Kia or uh, Kia EV6, EV9, Hyundai Ioniq uh, crossover. So, mm -hmm. yeah, finally, finally, we're getting lots of crossovers that are also battery propulsion vehicles uh, to meet that market demand for people who do want that utility. Yeah, I think if things have softened up a little bit from the initial push around the Mustang Mach-E, for example, which to me is, again, is sort of in that sweet spot of what people are looking for in any car, whether it's internal combustion or EV. So, so more of those on the market are definitely going to help the line on the hockey stick, as it were, you know, for, right. for EV sales and growth. Let's also talk about where we are with regard to infrastructure, because we know about this topic and and how much of a problem it is. Um, there's not enough chargers, public chargers, and those that are often broken or they take you out of your way. We've heard a lot of talk about the money and investment going into new charging points by the government, by industry, but this is going to take some time to actually get them up and installed. Where, where do you think we are right now as far as improving the infrastructure that will give people more confidence? Well, it's certainly happening. We've added charging stations and we've added ports this year. Looks like we've I think increased ports by about 15,000 from this time a year ago. So um, I always use the DOE's um, alternative fueling station locator. They keep pretty good track of where we're at. And we've got 36,935 DC fast charging ports in the United States right, right now. And those are spread out over uh, 8,595 stations. So those are pretty good numbers. And I said it's about a 15,000 unit jump, maybe, maybe about 10,000 uh, from where we were a year ago. I know Tesla's added about 7,000 ports for their supercharger network in the past year. And I think Electrify America, which is, you know, the big non-Tesla network in the U.S., has added about 400. So definitely a lower lower pace for them. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, and this is, this is going to take some time. It's, uh, you know, the DC fast uh, chargers are expensive to install. There's a lot of red tape involved. Um, you've got to get, you know, utilities and construction company. You've got to get a lot of stakeholders together. You know, there's paperwork. That's all trying to be simplified, but it's still it's still going to take some time. And then, of course, this year, you know, we had the deal, the, all the deals that Tesla struck for the North American charging standard with pretty much every legacy automaker and, and some of the startups as well to eventually have a NAX port uh, mm -hmm. integrated into non-Tesla vehicles, which uh, we, we think is going to make a big difference. Obviously, Tesla has a huge footprint. They've got about 25,000 ports right now in the United States, uh, compared to, I think, about 3,500 for Electrify America. So it's going to be great, you know, to, if you own a legacy OEM BEV, it's going to be great to have that access to those Tesla superchargers. The deals were announced pretty quickly. You know, everybody kind of fell in line. And I think the engineering aspect is something we're still unsure of if it's going to be as quick and seamless a process as it is for a Tesla using a Tesla supercharger. But certainly it looks, you know, we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. You know, you mentioned about red tape, which is something a lot of us, if we're not working in that space, 
that we probably didn't consider. Like we think, ah, you just, you know, tap into the existing wiring somewhere and, and you, boom, you have, uh, you, you got a bunch of fast chargers. Yeah, not so fast. I talked to some guys at the Chicago Auto Show about the difficulty in ramping up more urban charging stations, for example, in Chicago. And you can't just, these things draw a lot of juice. You can't just put them up willy-nilly. You, you really, there, right. there, there, there has to be a bunch of infrastructure work done on the ground in order to put these things up where you want them. You know, right. it's, it's going to take a few more years. But as far as how that impacts the consumer, guess what? The consumer doesn't care. <laughs> they just right. they don't care how long it takes or how difficult it it is. They yeah. you know it's just not it's it's just not a priority for consumers until they feel like they're not making any trade offs that are going to cost them time or money. Right. Uh, something I always want to I always like to bring up when we talk about this is you don't have to use a public infrastructure a public fast charger. Um, in fact, it's it's better if you don't because they're more expensive to use right. per kilowatt hour than charging at home. Um, it's a premium product. You know, you're paying for the convenience of the faster charge time. So if you have the ability to charge at home, you, you probably should do that. Um, if you're somebody who road trips a lot, you know, a ba battery electric vehicle might not be for you. If you're somebody who road trips a lot and you're going to need to rely on, on public charging infrastructure and you don't have a Tesla, you, you know, it might not be the best purchase decision right now for you. But but certainly, um, you know, the average American drives not that much per day. I think about 40 miles a day on average. Right. Um, you could actually do that. You could replenish that overnight in your garage on a standard household outlet. You don't even need to go to level two and pay for, you know, that to be installed. Um, well, now, just, Christy, you're talking about consumer psychology versus, yeah. <laughs> versus rationality. Yeah. And um you know, for example, I often bring this this little case study up that some years ago, the Japanese government and Mitsubishi were they put a test fleet of EVs into households, but there was very scant public charging. Mm -hmm. uh, and even though these households were chosen for the reasons that you say that they, you know, basically using their cars for less than 50 miles a day, even though they were told up one side and down the other that you're not going to run out of juice, you know, unless you go over this, I think the range was 140 miles or something. Uh, it didn't matter. People did not take the, the households that were chosen, didn't take the cars out. They were getting like no miles put on them. So then yeah. they went and installed some public chargers around the city. And then once that was done, then the households took them out and, and they were able to complete the study. And it's just there's there's a lot of psychology and a lot of I don't want to think about this right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll think about it when I have to think about it. But in the meantime, I'm going to drive my internal combustion uh, <laughs> vehicle. So yeah. I just think there's a lot of that in the market. There is. Right there now. is. Yeah. So let's talk about range. We were just talking about it. So 300 miles is the range, I think, that make people say, all right, 300 miles, I'll, I'll look at this. Do, do we think that that's still the case? 
That seems to be where we've ended up. You know, it's been a long time since I've I've asked somebody about. There used to be a lot of chatter about you know five or so years ago about you know we got to increase range, we got to you know make these these longer range batteries, we got to give you know consumers similar range to an internal combustion engine vehicle, and uh, yeah, we seem to have wound up at about 300 miles being the ideal ideal range in terms of price and weight and and all that you know more batteries make the vehicle heavier which impacts your fuel economy um we've even seen some announcements you know we just had fiat come out or stellantis come out announce you know the fiat 500e is coming back to the u.s and i think it's got about a 150 mile range but they're going to be marketing that in urban areas where people don't drive as much so and i know hyundai now with the new kona uh, electric is, is I think, under 300 miles of range. A lot of automakers are giving people a choice of a standard range and a longer range uh, pack. But for, for psychological reasons, as you were saying, I think, yeah, I think 300 miles is about the bogey that, that we need to hit. Yeah, the Volkswagen ID2, I think, is another one. It's an entry-level EV. And I think the range was, it was, it was a good it was in the 200s, but it was not 300. So I think that there is probably a market, you know, for the two to 275 range if it's entry level priced, right? Um, right. You, you know, and particularly if it's a if it's an urban um, situation. And that, uh, as far as the entry level and all of that, that brings me to another change we're going to see in January, which is the ability to use the $7,500 tax credit if your vehicle qualifies for it as a down payment at point of sale, mm-hmm. which means the dealer is going to be responsible for collecting that money from the government, which of course is making the dealers really happy and excited about that. <laughs> but um how much do, do you have any idea or, or any any uh, intel or opinions about how much if you're walking in starting in January and you're able to add seventy five hundred bucks at point of sale to either your uh, trade in or whatever cash you want to put into it? Do, do you have any sense of how much that will move the needle and bring people off the off the sidelines? Well, theoretically, it should. That's a whole lot of money, you know, and, and they're making it easy. Um, the question is, are dealers going to charge a market adjustment fee, which they have been doing lately for hot vehicles and um, including BEVs? So that that's an issue that we need to watch out for, where all of a sudden, you know, you get 7500 you know, yeah, down payment, but then all of a sudden the price jumps 7500 or maybe even more. And also, there just aren't a lot of vehicles that qualify right now because of the the rules uh, the federal government right. has instituted in terms of, you know, it has to be North American assembled for cars. It can't be, I believe, over 50,000. I'm forgetting the numbers right now, but I believe it's 50, 50 or 55,000 for a car. I think it's 80,000 for a light truck. Um, and then there are rules about the battery components and the battery materials. I believe a uh, minimum threshold, 40%. Uh, North American content or content from a country that we have a free trade agreement with, um, the U.S. has a free trade agreement with. So, you know, it's it's a, a relatively small pool of vehicles that will qualify. But I think for those vehicles, 
And as long as the dealers don't, you know, jack up the price, I think, yes, it will make a difference. Yeah. To your point, I think that the ones that qualify for the full 75 might actually be the ones in most demand. Right. I mean, because they'll, but if they're offsetting that with the quote unquote market adjustment, um, that could be, that could be a problem. So I did a show early in this series this year with Nancy Dunham, in which we talked about just dealer resistance to selling and marketing EVs with the same vigor that they do other vehicles. How much of a factor do you think this is going forward in terms of holding demand back and and just holding, not so much holding demand back, I guess, but, but just holding down almost the positive energy around EVs, if you've got dealers who, you know, if you got a lot of dealers who, who just aren't, you know, putting their shoulders into selling these. Yeah, um, it's certainly something we've been hearing a lot about from dealers themselves and also people that have been interacting with dealers and trying to buy a BEV. I was just with, uh, I was on Autoline yesterday and John McElroy was saying he knows of three people who were basically rejected by a dealer who wanted BEVs and the dealer said, you don't want that. I'm not going to sell you that because you're not going to be happy with it, <laughs> which is yeah. just crazy. It's just absolutely crazy and resulted in much frustration on those on those buyers parts. I, th- I think that's an extreme example. I think most of the time they're going to if you want to buy a car, they're going to sell you a car. You, you know, it, it might not be with as much enthusiasm as they're going to sell you an ICE because remember the dealers, they generate a lot of service revenue from servicing internal combustion engine vehicles that is projected to disappear, some of it is projected to disappear with battery electric vehicles, which after all, they don't need an oil change, right? Um, right. So there's evidence the brakes are longer lasting and there's definitely resistance. I can't say, is it is it a huge problem? Is it a medium problem? Is it a mild problem? I think it's very, it's probably very regional and actually probably just even down to, you know, particular dealers. Um, yes. But certainly it's an issue. Yeah, it's a, it's an issue. I mean, we have heard from dealers and dealer principals who are, you know, for for cultural, for political, you know, reasons are just not supporting this. In addition to not wanting to support EVs from a business standpoint for the reasons you just said, because they, they don't have the same long tail of revenue. But I'll tell you what, from the consumer standpoint, I'm just, this is very anecdotal, but I am getting hammered by the dealer on, on all the fixes to my current car. And I'll just, I won't, I won't mention the brand or the model, but I, the, the, what dealers are getting today for fixing and repairing internal combustion engine vehicles is shattering to me. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and, uh, this particular brand of car I won't be buying in the future. I can tell yeah. you that. Last thing I want to hit on is um, is the economy. So I'm seeing a lot of bullish reports on where the stock market is headed in 2024. Inflation, you know, continues to come down, and gas prices have, you know, have come down and and continue to come down. How much of these broad economic factors do you think will help EV sales in 2024? Well, I think increased lower inflation should bring about increased consumer confidence, as should a healthier stock market. And typically, when there's higher consumer confidence, consumers like to spend 
more, right? Um, so I think it, it absolutely should help. And we've also got more choice. You know, we've got more nameplates coming to market uh, next year, you know, that'll give consumers broader, give the segment broader appeal, give the battery electric vehicle sector broader appeal. So absolutely, I think a healthier economy will uh, will improve consumer sentiment and and perhaps bring them into a dealership for <laughs> a dealership that they can find that want that wants to sell them above for for a purchase. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, I saw too. Just in terms of affordability, I saw a number yesterday. I think the current duration of auto financing is something like. 67 months or something, which I still, I'm sorry, I'm old school. Yeah, I just never believe in taking more than a four year loan on a vehicle, but right, right, it's just, it is what it is. Are there any other issues I'm leaving out that you think could really impact EV sales performance in 2024? Well, well, barring some sort of calamity, uh, I think, I think price, what we just were talking about is like perhaps the biggest issue because what we have available right now in the US market is a lot of very expensive bebs. We mm-hmm. have a lot of vehicles that are 50,000, well, some in the upper 40s, but you know, we'll say 45,000 and above. There's a lot of choice there. There's hardly any choice below 45,000. You know, the Bolt is leaving the market this year. It's going to return, but we've got to wait a year or two. Um, we do have that Fiat 500e coming, but as I stated, it's got a pretty low range, and the price point is 35,000. Which, you know, for me, I've only ever put 5,000 down on, on the purchase of a new vehicle. So, you know, theoretically, if I were to buy that, I'd be looking at financing $30,000, which over a 60-month period is $500 a month, which I think is just is still it's way too high for your average early majority car buyer. So we need. I think desperately we need some more affordable options. And unfortunately, when I look at what the, what's coming up in 2024, there isn't a whole lot there other than the 500E. Um, we've got the Equinox coming, but they're starting with the highest trim level, which I think is about $50,000. And the $35,000 model is coming at a later date. I don't even know if they've put a date on that when that's coming. There's suspicion that they might not actually do it. So, you know, automakers, they lose money pretty much on on the the legacy automakers lose money on sale every sale of every BEV because this is something that they've never done before. They need to make the money back. It's going to take time. Um, And certainly they'd rather sell you a more expensive model than than, uh, a lower price model. But I Mm -hmm. think if the sector is ever going to really get off the ground and we're going to get to 50% by 2030 as, as President Biden wants, that we've got to expand the offerings in that sort of Corolla Civic area, you know, that's that compact car, compact crossover, under $30,000 price point. And does the 500E qualify for the $7,500 tax credit? That's a very good question that I don't know off the top of my head. I would guess not because I don't think it's built in the United. I think it's being imported. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was talking about with these like cross current things that are all in the in the stew around EVs is that, and some companies are, are wading into it differently. For example, this is why the, the Honda Prologue and the Acura ZDX are actually made in a partnership with GM on the LTM platform because they weren't going to be ready to, to build these things in the States. They've got, you know, lines going up in Marysville for future EV products, but 
they weren't there yet and they wanted to be out in the market with them. So they, they teamed up with GM, you know, which I, I found, you know, found very unusual, except that the LTM platform seems to be a really good platform. So, you know, it met Honda standards. Uh, right, right. You know, and GM and Honda have a, have a history of uh, collaboration on engineering. So mm-hmm. there's that as well. So, well, thank you so much, Christy, for, you know, helping me do kind of a roundup for our audience. These are all items that we've hit in different episodes, but I just, you know, as this is the last podcast of 2023, I just thought it was a good place to uh, kind of review, round up and look ahead all at once. So thanks very much. You're welcome, David. Thanks for having me. This podcast was brought to you by American Axle and Manufacturing. AAM is designing, engineering, and manufacturing award-winning vehicle technologies to power a more sustainable future. Their team is pushing the boundaries of disruption all around the world with over 80 global locations in 18 countries. To learn more and join the team that is bringing the future faster, visit aam.com careers. Well, thanks to my colleague, Christy Schweinsberg, for sharing her perspective and intelligence on the EV market. And thank you for coming along for the ride in our kickoff year. We will be back in January and we'll be branching out into areas outside of the transition from ICE to EVs. We'll be talking about connected cars, autonomous driving, hydrogen powered transportation and mobility, and more. And we will be doing that in Ward's Auto's 100th year. I'm your host, David Kiley, and Graham Mitchell is our engineer. American Axle has been our sponsor. Have a safe, sound, and joyous new year. And until we meet again in the new year, enjoy the ride.